Welcome to an episode of the award-winning podcast Art Insiders New York. My name is Anders Holst. The theme of the podcast is New York, with a focus on behind-the-scenes conversations with fascinating people who are making an impact in the world of art, design, and architecture. Today we find ourselves in Stuyvesant Square Park in the city's Lower East Side, together with Carla and James Murray and their wonderful dog, Hudson. James and Carla Murray are not only husband and wife, but also prolific architectural and interior design photographers, whose critically acclaimed books include Storefront, The Disappearing Face of New York, New York Nights, Storefront 2, A History Preserved, and Broken Windows Graffiti, New York City. Their important mission is to document the disappearance of the mom-and-pop economy, often the backbone of the New York cityscape, standing in sharp contrast to the city's rapidly evolving corporate facade. You can follow them on YouTube, where they have published some 90 episodes of Verite-style neighborhood exploration around the New York City from their unique perspective. So why we're here is because I, I stumbled upon one of your videos when you were walking around uh, New York, Carla and Hudson, and uh, it was this uh, dystopian feeling uh, overall. There was uh, wonderful music and you were walking around in a deserted uh, city. And um, it, uh, when I watched that, it brought back the love for the city because you were going through beautiful Lower East Side uh, areas, and uh, uh, it was also a, a sense of a loss in the uh, in the way that we are entering into a new phase here with the coronavirus and and all of that. So it was a double sort of loss of the city and loss of of of, of life as we knew it. So how did you how did you start doing these walks? Well, really. The, the walk stemmed from, we had started our YouTube channel you know, prior to the coronavirus shutdown, and primarily we were highlighting what we call mom and pop stores of the city, because that's something that we've been documenting for like well over 25 years. We really love, I mean, to us, the little unique stores that make up each neighborhood, like they define each neighborhood. They're the backbone of the community. So we were documenting them, but sadly, so many of them, except if they were deemed essential, closed because of the coronavirus shutdown. So we wanted to continue documenting things and our hope was that we could kind of find some stores that maybe were open that we could highlight. Yeah. But since there really weren't that many, especially in the Lower East Side and Chinatown especially, pretty much every store shut down. Even the essential ones, they just did not feel safe and um, Chinatown kind of got vilified. Um, you know, a lot of people were locals and certainly there was no tourists, just weren't going in there. So we said, you know what, let's just start walking around mm -hmm. and documenting like from our point of view which was really just walking the streets like we always have yeah. and showing everyone the effects of of the coronavirus shutdown because it was really devastating i mean i'm a lifelong new yorker um born and raised and i've never ever seen the city like this i mean i mean I was in the Bronx in the 1970s when they were burning. I mean, yeah. they, you know, a lot of big news on that, and it seen a lot of devastation, but it, not, nothing, nothing like this. Yeah, we've never seen uh, the city so deserted. It was like a palatable, even though we didn't see anyone or talk to anyone, there was a palatable sense of uh, just hopelessness. Of, uh, despair. Despair. Right. Yeah, despair, hopelessness. Um, even after 9-11, I mean, people are walking around with their husband's photo taped to their chest. Yeah. Saying, if found, yeah. call us. And, yeah. and I mean, I, I couldn't think of anything sadder. And then this just took everything out of the city in like, a, like, like we've never seen. Right. Because even after 9-11, I mean, like James was saying, our own neighborhood, I mean, it was littered with posters. Posters yeah. everywhere, like, if you see this person, please right. call. Stores, except for Lower Manhattan, were still open, right. so it wasn't like things right. shut down. Right, no. there still was a sense of uh, defiance right. that New York always does. To, you exactly. Know, if, uh, there wasn't, we'll get through this, you know, this isn't going to knock us down. We're, tourists weren't coming in, but the people didn't leave the city. Mm -hmm. Like, right. 
you know, we could see, well, wow, where did, where did everyone go? Like, because we have a dog, we had to go out. So we were just going out as usual, but we said, you know yeah. what, we'll bring our camera along on these walks. Yeah, our first video is walking him late at night. Yeah. And it was a Saturday night, which in the East Village is always, I mean, yeah, so busy. Yeah. You know, it doesn't matter whether it's raining. People will be out anyway, out at restaurants, bars. It, it, yeah. The East Village has a lot of younger population because the proximity to all these colleges, NYU, the New School, um, right. Cooper Union, but and no one, no, no one was around. I mean, I was literally walking in the middle of Second Avenue, no cars, no people, yeah. um, nothing. Startling. Yeah. How many yeah. How many walks have you done? I mean, they are also available on YouTube. 30, actually. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, some of them, we, we highlighted some of the, the small businesses, yeah. too, during the coronavirus shutdown, but we have more coming. <laughs> I really like those walks, and, and I also love the music. So what is this, the story between the two of you and the city? Yeah, September 11th is actually our anniversary. Oh, we is. were married on 9-11, yeah. yeah. Wow. I mean, uh, now it's, it's a somber day, unfortunately, but um, we try to make the best of it. Yeah. Both of us always loved graffiti art, and um, I wouldn't call us graffiti artists per se. Um, like, I guess you could say like we dabbled in graffiti. Mm -hmm. um, we always like, loved photography. Me growing up, I always had a camera. Um, luckily, um, my mom was always, she was very artistically inclined and she always um, fostered like my creative creativity, you know? If anything, I might not have had a lot of stuff growing up, well, didn't have a lot of money, but she would always buy me a new pack of crayons or whatever mm -hmm. I wanted that was like creative outlet. So I always had a camera and I always liked documenting things. and. And we decided to start documenting graffiti because one of his friends that was a graffiti artist mm -hmm. said, hey, you guys have a camera. Can you document um, a piece of graffiti that I did on a wall yeah. in Manhattan? He's like, I'll go with you and I'll show you where it is. And if you could take a picture of it and give me a copy of it, I'd appreciate it because he didn't have any money. He didn't have, because this is all before digital. This yeah, is yeah, 35 yeah. millimeter. And it was expensive. I mean, you know, to develop film, to buy film, develop film, to have a decent camera. And we said, sure. Once he showed us the, the piece that he did, there was some other graffiti around there and we started documenting. And we're like, wow, this is fascinating. We didn't really realize that somebody that was in their like later 20s. Yeah would still be painting graffiti because when, but we both were interested in the art form. We right. were younger, like we were, you know, like rebellious teenagers, I guess you could yeah. say. <laughs> um, we liked walking the tracks and going in the subway tunnels. Right, so it was, uh, we really started documenting graffiti art. And it wasn't like the destructive end of graffiti, it was more like the, what we call the mural side of graffiti. Yeah. So right. it had a message behind it. It yeah. was, um, they were exactly. trying to like get out their frustration, their anger, what, whatever, it, mm -hmm. whatever it was. Like, right. Right. 1989 is the last time a train ran in New York City that had graffiti painted on the outside of it. Uh -huh. the, the New York City um, Transit Authority will not let a, a train that has graffiti on the outside of it run. Mm -hmm. You know, like you can paint it, and people still, still do. Painted, yeah. People still do. They, they, they'll. You get arrested if you're caught, and, and it's, it's a sure. big deal. Yeah, it's a but big deal. they won't, they won't let the train run. You know, they'll keep they'll it. They'll take in, it out of service. They'll take yeah. it out of service. Is what I I'm see. trying to say. When they went from the subway to walls, they really tried to impart that movement in the letters, because graffiti is all about the name. Mm -hmm. It's all about the tag. So we really right, liked the, the artist's ability to manipulate the letters, mm -hmm. to impact that movement. Yeah. You know, the letters are moving all over the place with arrows, and, and that always attracted us. And while we were documenting that, we noticed these old neon signs, hand-painted signs, mm -hmm. and we're like, wow, that lettering's really cool as well. That's when it occurred to us that, wow, this is a temporary art form. We started seeing the storefronts disappear as well, because as Carla will explain, rent started increasing yeah. And a lot of these little shops were forced out of business. Right. So in the late 1990s, when we were like heavily documenting graffiti, we were going to like these outlying neighborhoods. Like there was graffiti murals, I would say, being done here on the Lower East Side in the East Village, but not to the extent that it was being done in the Bronx, 
and Brooklyn and Queens. So we were going into these neighborhoods that we had never been to before. I mean, it's funny because as a lifelong New Yorker, you think that I would see everything, but mm -hmm. that's not, the city is huge. Yeah. And you tend to stay in your own neighborhood. We would go like, you know, to Mott Haven, um, and, you know, in, in the Bronx, or we would right. go, say, Glendale, you know, in, in Queens, yeah. Middle Village, you know. I've never been to Staten Island prior to, point, to documenting yeah. graffiti. Like, why would I go to Staten Island? Like, it just, nobody goes to beautiful. Staten Island no. unless they live there for the most part. <laughs> Which is a beautiful place. Right, it's a beautiful place, <laughs> but you just, you just don't go there. I mean, like, because we were interested in like the lettering style and graffiti, we were always looking like, oh, look at that little hand-painted sign in the window of this store. How, how interesting how they, they painted that, how they manipulated the letters. So we were always looking at them, but we never thought to document the store. Yeah. But what happened was, we went back, it was a one particular store that kind of like was the genesis of it. It was um, in Brooklyn. We had gone to this neighborhood to document a graffiti wall. We went back like three months later to see if it, the wall had been repainted because the graffiti artists often repaint the same wall over yeah. and over and over again. And we looked around the neighborhood and we're like, wait a minute, it doesn't look the same anymore. It doesn't feel the same anymore. And it's because a couple of these little mom and pop stores had closed. Yeah. They went out of business. And we're like, wait a minute, what happened to that great little candy store? It had a wonderful sign. We had gone in there briefly and we got, you know, a pack of gum and, and some soda or whatever we had bought. And we, you know, chatted with the owner for a, a second or two and laughed about something. The neighborhood just didn't have that same feel anymore. Like it lost its uniqueness, like its character when yeah. when the store wasn't there. Yeah. You know, so we said, you know what? We should start documenting these stores. We're here anyway yeah. to document the graffiti. Let's take a picture of of these stores. So that's how. Like it's kind of a really long story, but that's but, how we got to be, you know, document these like mom and pop stores. So what explains your fascination with the storefronts? Well, when we began to notice that they were disappearing and began documenting them, we really, it wasn't just, at first it was very visual, like it was all about what the store looked like, um, you know, aesthetically, um, why we were taking the photo. But what happened was we had been interviewing graffiti artists and finding out like why they painted, you know, where they painted or why they did what they did. We would be asking them right. pointed questions. What we decided to do was also interview the store owners. We were wondering like, why does this business open a hundred years mm. and, one, and one next door closes? Like what, do they have a secret recipe? Do like, what, what's the secret behind their longevity? And when we started speaking to the owners about like the you know joys and struggles of operating like oftentimes a family-owned business that was passed down from generation to generation, we found like such fascinating you know they they shared with us these details, these stories, like these facts that we were just like blown away. Like we had never thought about it like really before. We just kind of took them for granted. Yeah. That, you know, that the stores were there and that they would always be there. But when we started. Speaking with the owners, they were so like gratified, like yeah. so happy so to share pride, with us. Yeah. Right, so much pride in what they do that we said, wow, we really have to continue documenting this because they are really the backbone of New York City. Right. And oftentimes they were immigrant owned. Yeah. Like they were they the families came from wherever um, and they saved all their money to open their own business and be their own boss. Yeah. So they can make a better life for themselves and for their children. Yeah. And we we really we really liked that because it was like they were almost like the underdog, just like graffiti artists yeah, exactly. were the were the underdog. Mm -hmm. um, you know Oftentimes, like the graffiti, it just got brushed aside in the art world. I mean, now times are different. You know, graffiti, <laughs> you know, there's people that pay, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars Millions, for a yeah. graffiti art piece. But that yeah. wasn't that wasn't, that the, wasn't case. the case in the, in the late 1990s. It was like an every man's art. Right. Just it like was an like, every man's store. Right. The poor man's art. Was, like in, in a, the, right. like the, you know, the working class guy. Right. Yeah. So we felt like, okay. They need a voice, just like the graffiti artists need a voice. Yeah. They need a voice. They need right. a champion. This story has to be right. told. Right. This story yeah. has to be told. Like nobody is really documenting it, as far as we knew. I mean, we we looked up to other photographers. Like we always loved Atjay. He was a big inspiration for us. He documented yep. like the the working man, 
um, in Paris. He documented a lot of little stores. Berenice Abbott, was, who was a friend of Ache, also right. did that in, the, um, in New York City, like during the Depression era. Right. Um, so we had like inspiration by the other photographers that had documented the stores, but not in the 1990s, early 2000s. No. Yeah. To our knowledge, no one else was really doing it. So we felt like, oh, this is important. Let's just keep undocumenting it. You know, we weren't sharing with anyone. We weren't showing it to anyone. This was a personal project. This was done purely for the love. Yeah. You know, our love for the city and our pride in like showing these what we thought were pieces of art in their in their own realm. Sure. Like to us, the a beautiful storefront is is a it's it's a piece of artwork. Uh, you're fascinated by the design of the storefront, uh, and then you realize there's a much bigger story here. It's about really community, and that uh, what you were saying that the, uh, these mom and pop stores were sort of the the center was like I thought you said there was a community hall, you know, right. th th that's tied the community together. Uh, it creates the vibe of a neighborhood. It creates the character of a neighborhood, sure. and and uh, I think what we are all experiencing now. Of course is that New York is going through so the gentrification is uh, the modernization and um, neighborhoods are losing uh, their charm basically a lot of these mom-and-pop stores they became like ad hoc community centers it was a place where you could go and maybe get a taste of home mm. you know like say um, a Polish owned um, kielbasa, you know, like a meat market, and you can get your homemade kielbasa from... Everyone's speaking Polish. Everyone's speaking Polish. Yeah. You can get that little taste of home. The you smells just, and the... You know, you go in there and you smell the aroma, and it, and it brings you right back home. So you would just, you would feel that, that sense of belonging, of, of, of being together. Yes. These mom and pop places, they get to know their customers, yeah. and they care about their customers, and yeah. they'll, they'll know you, like you'll, they'll see your, you know, we, we used to go to this, unfortunately it closed, um, this like little luncheonette, and he'd see us coming from across the street, and Jim likes his coffee black, I like mine with, uh, with a little sugar and, and milk, and he'd have it like ready for us. We wouldn't even be yeah. inside yet. We, the door wouldn't even be open, and he'd, he'd have it ready for us. He knew, like, someone cares about you, they'll go that little extra mile, yeah, or right. they'll sign for your package. Like, if you're not home, like a place where you can find out the local gossip, yeah. you know, chew, chew the fat, as, as New Yorkers yeah, like we, to say, uh, with, with the owner. <laughs> we uh, would spend, like, five, six hours in some of these places, just because it was so entertaining. Like, we went to a park store in the Bronx. No, Brooklyn. 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 Emily's and Pork Store. There was such a crew. I mean, there was an 80-year-old guy who sang a Sinatra. There was other guys that thought they were comedians, you know, and just giving out the one-liners, one right, after one the other. Right, one guy just, like, he, he took some um, he took some bread, you know, because yeah, they, 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 they walked behind he made the his counter. Own, right, he went to the butcher block, and he started cutting, like, yeah, he had makes just his bought own some sandwich. meat, and he made himself a sandwich <laughs> as he started eating chairs set up in the kitchen. <laughs> right. And they're all just hanging out, and we, we stayed, like, hours, and it was just so, and just to hear, like, you get so much history of the neighborhood, and... He's telling us how they used to drag tables on Sunday night out in front of the store and have their Sunday dinner out in front on the sidewalk. Right, and, and this is in yeah. Williamsburg. Like, this was the old Italian section of Williamsburg before it became gentrified. I mean, there's not too much of the old Italian Williamsburg left anymore. Yeah. No. So we, you know, and we said, countless, wow. countless stories like right, that. Right, countless stories like that. So really, for Every us... Every photo in our book has, like a massive history behind it right and the, that the, you would never realize the yeah. story like behind the photo like the interview that we got from the store owner became just as important if not more important to us than the, the photo yeah and so just, when our editor was putting together the book he'd, he'd like, see the photo and he'd be like oh, does this have to be in here this it would like read the interview. Right, read the So you'd take like right. a few minutes, read the interview, and he's like, oh, I get it. I right. Get it. Yeah. yeah. And also these stores, uh, they play a very important role between generations. There are stories that I saw from uh, articles and interviews that you've done that they took care of the kids in the neighborhood. And when, oh, yeah. they, they, when they occasionally stole something, they knew exactly who they were. <laughs> and, and, uh, and I find that lacking in today's society.
Right. I mean, I think what you're referring to is Katie Kaiser, who, who owned um, Katie's Candy Store, which was in, in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn. She um, she called herself like the dinosaur of Tompkins, because that's the name of the street that she, she was on. She was a big woman by any measure. Right. And she had a voice that like just boomed out. And like she a had a sailor's language. Like just <laughs> every other word was F and this and, and that. And, and people would come in and say hi, and she'd be like, hey, you son of a bitch. Right, she and, genuinely uh, cared about the neighborhood because she was like born and raised right in that neighborhood. She never left the neighborhood, and then she opened up this candy store, and Bed-Stuy in particular was hit by, oh, very hard by drugs, yeah. you know, like crack and, and, yeah, and devastated. stuff. devastated. Devastated, like in, in the 1980s. Wow. And she purposely kept her store, like, open. open and prices super low because she figured maybe kids will buy candy. Yeah instead of drugs and she she cared about the kids yeah, she when we interviewed her she was still selling penny candy right and, and like cnc colas for a quarter right 2003 she still <laughs> sold ca pe uh, candy yeah i saw a beautiful quote from her too her language yeah. skills yes, yes. <laughs> right she said we asked her katie like you know how did you survive in this neighborhood she's like oh well i've survived everything this neighborhood has thrown on me the dope crack everything she's like i to survive it speak three languages english spanish and mother effort <laughs> and, you know i'm i'm and, saying and it the, nicely in her voice right she said this gravelly 10-pack a day voice was just wonderful she was robbed and she recognized who was robbing her it was like yeah, a teenager from the neighborhood. She had a big lazy boy chair behind the counter yeah. and a TV. So right. like in between, she would sit down and relax and they actually duct taped her to her lazy boy chair. Right, to rob the cash register. And she, I guess they were wearing a little mask, but she recognized their eyes through yeah. the mask and she, she told us, I know who you are. And, uh, uh, I want to you tell better, your mother. Right, you better untie me because I'm going to tell your mother. Don't and you're worry about get, the police. I'm going to tell your mother and right, she's going to give you. You're going to get more trouble from beating <laughs> from your mom than, than, you know, than the police will ever give you. So they let her go, you know. Right. And that's, you know. The funniest thing was we, Japanese TV, wanted to do a live feed. Right, like NHK. Following us around and talking to some of these store owners. And we didn't think at the time. We said, oh, Katie would be great. Yeah. But we didn't think it through. So... <laughs> They had this big satellite truck parked out in front of Katie's and like a crew of like 15. First sentence she opens up there, the big cat microphone come down and it's right in front of her, the dead cat. And the first thing she says is like, well, that a mother effer. He, and like you see the wash of panic because it's live in Japan. Right. So they and they're all running clean. outside to the truck and everybody's scurrying around and Katie doesn't even realize and she just keeps going. And she's like the shit and this and that. And, oh. And it, just, and it was it was hysterical because we were just so used to Katie and being right. New Yorkers, we didn't even think twice. Right, we didn't. Over all these years that you've been working on this, what, what are the stores that have really touched your, your heart? I mean, she's definitely one of them because the sad thing is she was forced out of business. The, the number one reason, because we've, since interviewing all these owners, we would ask them, do you own the building that mm. your store is in? And... You know, we asked them just point blank. And when they said no, that was the death knell of their business. Mm. We knew that it was just, unfortunately, a matter of time before they were going to be run out. Because 30, 40 years ago, when you would right. went, rent a store, they would give you a 25-year lease. They would mm. give you a 50-year lease if you would sign it. Because they were so happy to get somebody to lock in like that you would right. stay there that long, that you, they would have that security, that they were happy to give you long-term leases. That doesn't exist in New York anymore. Because right, the city at the time was giving buildings away. Right, the uh -huh. city at the time, if you could pay, if you if you could could pay, pay taxes, the taxes taken, on a building, they, the were, they, were would so give, they would sell you the building for a dollar. You know, not only in the Bronx, in Park Slope, Brooklyn. Park Slope is super expensive now, but I can tell you firsthand, we know people yeah. that, Luigi's bought, pizza. Right, that bought the building for a dollar because- <laughs> That it, would be one that uh, really touched us, right. Luigi's. This is a, a neighborhood pizzeria, and it's like, they call the neighborhood, like the real estate agents call it Greenwood Heights now. Like, Greenwood it's a neighborhood Heights. that doesn't have its own identity. It's close to Park Slope, but Park Slope won't include it as part of the neighborhood. That gets us a couple of blocks further. You know, these real estate agents came in and like, they like to rebrand neighborhoods. Like, yeah, neighborhoods right. that had a bad rap, like, right. you know, Hell's Kitchen in, in Manhattan. Now Clinton. They call it now Clinton, or, you know, now they have, like, all these brand-new buildings on the west side, so they, you know, calling it Hudson Yards, and they're calling, they're rebranding all these, these, these neighborhoods to make it sound more attractive. He told us, he's like, you know, I, 
th this this store is everything to me. My my father started it, and he used to grow, and he still does today. Grow his own herbs for us to make our homemade sauce for to flavor on Staten our, Island. You know, on Staten Island to 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 flavor our um, you know our gravy. That's what the Italians call. The sauce. The sauce yeah. They called it gravy. And he's another another massive guy. Yeah. Big guy. And we had we had started to dabble in video. And Carla's videoing him and he's telling us the history of the store. And he makes an entire pizza, cooks it, slices it, and gives it to customers with never looking at it. Right. The like whole he knew video. you know, he's been doing it since he was a kid. Yeah. Right. So, so he he's doesn't even have to look just yeah. muscle memory. Right, yeah. exactly. Muscle memory. Just like doing the dough and tossing it up in the air and never right. looking like it, it could have landed on the floor, but of course it didn't. Um, Russ and Daughter's appetizers, at first it was, um, they needed a name. When they created an actual store, first they were selling from a push cart. They needed a name to like delineate what they sold in that particular store. The word delicatessen was um, for meats. So when you sold meats, it was called a delicatessen, but they needed a word because there was no word like in the English language to delineate where you would sell like cream cheese and smoked fish because you're mm -hmm. allowed to put fish and dairy together but mm -hmm. just not no meat so that's the, how the word appetizers came about because they needed something to put on their sign i see and at first the, the business was called joel uh russ cut rate appetizers cut rate meaning inexpensive yeah you know to attract people right. and then when he had his daughters became teenagers and working at the stores <laughs> he actually changed the name to Russ and Daughters appetizers and put it in writing that they were they would be the next generation owners. I and love still that story. today it's yeah, a fourth Nikki generation Russ. Nikki Russ Fetterman is passed from the and daughters from the original daughter. Yeah. She's one of the, the um, grandchildren. So when um, their their relatives came they were Eastern European came over to the United States they st started selling smoked fish from a push cart in the Lower East Side. And eventually they opened up this store. It's on Houston Street and it's still there today. Mm. And to us, that's one of the, the favorite like immigrant success stories um, that we like to tell people because it not only did they have the um, great-great-grandfather, because now it's co-owned by the fourth generation owners, mm. pass it down from um, to their children, but it's the only business in New York and probably in the United States that had the word and daughters. So the business was passed down to the daughter, mm -hmm. not the son, because mm -hmm. most of the businesses and most right. of the businesses that we've documented, it was like, say a pork store in the Bronx, Dominic Doria and Sons. It was passed down from father to son. The mother might've been involved in the business, but she wasn't like the owner. Joel Russ, who founded the appetizing store, didn't have any sons. So, and his daughters were attractive. Right, by they started working in the store. He had four daughters, and they started working in the store when they were teenagers, and they were very beautiful teenagers. So all the old men in the neighborhood would, I'm going down to Russ and daughters, get some fish. <laughs> right, you know, to hang out and, and talk talk right, up they the were, daughters. They were, they were, um, <laughs> they would go to their store. There were a lot of appetizing stores on the Lower East Side at, in the early 1900s because it had a large Jewish population. Mm -hmm. But people went to their store because yeah, the, old Mr. The, Russ the daughters were there. And they, and like the, you know, older customers would try to play matchmaker. matchmaker you know, yeah. match up their sons. <laughs> oh, I have a good son <laughs> yeah. for, for Hattie, you know. <laughs> and when we heard that story, we were like, wow, that's incredible. Like we had always seen the sign like Russ and daughters, but we didn't, we didn't realize the historical significance of it. And during you know, the depression, they had a choice of either losing their home or losing the business. Right, and, the, and Joel Russ, who founded, decided not to sell their, their business, like they had bought the building. Yeah. They sold their home, so they sacrificed their home to keep the business because they were losing money in the Great Depression. Where did they sleep, in the, in the store? They, 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 no, they rented an apartment nearby a cheap mm. little apartment right. because they needed the income from the people that lived above the store mm -hmm. to help keep but them we, afloat too we have histories of people that did sleep in their store like yes. uh yes, Coastars Coastars, Coastars. they slept above the oven in the winter to, to stay, stay warm, warm. <laughs> that's that was their heat do you see any signs of that there is a, sort of a counter uh, a counter movement here that 
that people are coming back to the mom and pop store. Uh, there was a story about the Wall Street guy who sort of took up his father's uh, store. Uh, you know, he got sick of the financial markets and stuff like that, and 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 went back. Do you see any trend to- towards that? Yes, definitely. I mean, even Russ and daughters, Nikki Russ Fetterman, is a lawyer. She, um, you know, became a lawyer and she was working as a lawyer and I guess she was, you know, unhappy, you know, with her job and she actually ended up joining the family business. So um, she told us that her father's happiest day was when, not when she got her, you know, degree to become a lawyer, but when she learned how to slice the fish properly, the smoked fish, because if you go there, we have Tears a video. In his eyes. Right, we have a video of how they do it. It's paper thin, like you can see. You can through read the, through it. Right, yeah. you can see through the slice. Yeah. Like yeah. there's a proper way to do it. So when she properly sliced the smoked salmon, was his happiest day. She said, yeah. you know, forget you know getting all yeah. these fancy You're degrees, passing the, bar. passing the bar exam. That was that was nothing. Smoke. Because. Because that's what happened to these mom and pop stores is that they were they were uh, working to to get their kids a better uh, start in life and and they became lawyers and doctors and were not interested in the, in, in the business anymore. Precisely, like Joe's Dairy, which is an old um, dairy store, it was in in the edge of Soho. I mean, when we spoke with the owner, he told us that he's working so many hours a day that he doesn't want his kids to take over the business. He yeah. said, I want right. them to get an I education. Want I want something better for for my daughter. I don't want her to work at the store. Dinette, yeah. Dinette is like a, I don't know if they have that in Sweden, Switch. but it's a term for like a big um, a dining room set, like where the family can all eat together. Usually like it yeah, maybe- It's a table in like four chairs, classically. Or six chairs or eight right. chairs. Sometimes the chairs are forming right. like a With booth. a formica top. With a formica top. Usually it's like with a, glitter involved. Right, it's a sp- <laughs> up, like a very specific style. And it opened in, in Bushwick, Brooklyn, which at the time had a large Italian population. And we, when we interviewed Barbara Mann, she was the second generation owner of the, of the dinette store. I said, oh, well, who's going to take over? Because we'd always ask, who's going to take over the business like when they were elderly? She's like, oh, no, my, my son is a very successful doctor. You know, he works at NYU Medical Center in, in Manhattan. And oh, he has no interest in selling furniture. You know, we worked really hard. We gave our, up really our life, like our life was the store, yeah. to make a better life for him, to get a higher education. And now he's a doctor. So when this store closes, like we die, we that the store dies. Yeah. W- you know, with us. Yeah. Interestingly, in the like, I would say like in the 2010s, like between 2010 and 2020, uh, we saw a lot of people who. Um, got a higher education, now go back to their family business. An excellent, excellent, um, besides the Russ and Daughters owner, is No Ma Tea Parlor mm. in Chinatown. Wilson Tang is now the owner. I guess he's in his late 20s, early, probably in the early 30s now. But he was a successful Wall Street guy. Mm. And his uncle had this, the oldest tea, dim sum tea parlor in Chinatown. Mm. And it's gorgeous. It's on Crooked Doyer Street. When we interviewed him, he told us that his uncle Wally um, told him, "Listen, I'm getting older, and you know, I'm just going to close the business. That's it. And, you know, I'm, I'm done. I'm tired of it. I worked so hard. You know, restaurant businesses are very demanding, and there may not be a lot of profit in yeah. them. You know, they work for very, very small amount. You know, they're not getting rich on these these little little places." He just couldn't let that happen. He quit his job in Wall Street and he became a a restaurateur. And very successfully because he used the power of social media to turn the business around. Because the business maybe, you know, it was doing okay, I guess. It was surviving, I guess you would say. But he reinvented it. He kept the old school vibe. So it has a lot of it. He kept the menu. Old school interior. But he decided to concentrate on food that was dim sum like at, at first it was more like a tea parlor and they, they, right, yeah. they he said I, I love dim sum why not serve dim sum all day long yeah. and he used social media to get the word out and yeah he embraced a lot of modern he embraced like modern technology yeah. and yeah there's a lot of the guys we interview they still have a cigar box with a little nail in it to keep their money in yeah 
that's their cash register. Right, or <laughs> they, they have, really have a Rolodex, you know, like the little, Rolodex little with cards, business cards where you should, would write the name. Yeah. Like that's their, their you clientele. A, you, you know, know like they're not or, on a computer. They're yeah. like, oh, computer, blah. You know, yeah, yeah. they so, don't want to do, do computer. Yeah. I mean, another great place is the um, Caputo's Bakery in Brooklyn. They... Again, the owner was like kind of like ready to retire. He, you know, they made homemade Italian bread, like uh, lard bread, which has like the flecks of prosciutto in it. Yeah. Um, bread became like at the time, I guess in the 2000s, like there was this craze like where carbohydrates weren't good for you anymore. Don't eat bread. Right. Um, he was losing a lot of business. Right. But um, before that, the bread owner said the big Italian families would come in three times a day right. to buy was, like six loaves. Right. Bread was the, an Italian staple because it was cheap and it was filling. And right. like you didn't have a lot of money, you could make a little, you would make a meatball or two. Yeah. And then stretch it over three sandwiches. Right. But you would fill up on the bread. So they would buy a lot, a lot, a lot of bread. Yeah. And, and then that started falling off because the Italians left the neighborhood. They moved out. And like this Carl guy, said he didn't have a computer. Like he was just taking orders by phone and writing them down on scraps <laughs> of papers. And sometimes he wouldn't be paid, and he would just like, right. you know, okay, don't don't worry about it. And then he'd forget that they even so owned the money. So the son came in, and he's like, "There's this big pile of receivables that haven't been touched." <laughs> right. His son again was a Wall Street guy, and he's like, you know, he was. I guess disgruntled with his life, you know, just being on Wall Street and, yeah. and doing that kind of work. And he and his father was going to retire and just close the business. And yeah. he resur resurrected that bake shop. I mean, Caputo's Bakery. It it is like um, artisanal now. He sells a lot of like artisanal loaves. Like people have an interest now um, in that homemade. Yeah bread like exactly. that 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 flavor crafted yeah yeah crafted like um you know no preservatives and, and things like that so um storefronts uh mom and pop's storefronts uh, is also uh, a piece of art is it possible to distinguish different styles that this style belongs to the 30s this is the 40s this is the 50s definitely to us you could certainly look at it like a storefronts um aesthetic like the sign or how they displayed things in the window, like a window display is a certain era. Right. The way you display your products in a, in a window is, is a form of art. There was window dressers, you know, like, yeah. I mean, there still are. write all the little price tags and put them on all the products. That was Katz's uh, pharmacy, right? <laughs> he, uh, he explained to us that it was a day-long affair, the guy coming in and, and dressing the window and and right. making all the little cards. Right, he would go around the store, like the store owner would say, um, okay, it's um, springtime, let's let's feature some makeup, like women want to, you know, have a fresh face for the spring. And yeah. then he would just give that guy an idea, and right. then he would just go around the store picking different different items, and then he would just make the signs like on the fly, meaning like on the spot, he would hand just- Hand letter them, yeah. He would hand paint them, hand letter them, and put them, and make some attractive display. So people would come by, right. So that's one by. way of dating them. Right, um, so one day of dating, one way of dating them is to look at like the actual store, like the panes of glass, like how they're set, set into the store. Gold leaf lettering. Right, the Of gold, course now the neon signs, everyone's- uh, Right, neon can signs- Can kind of tell what era. But what leaf lettering? So what was what era was that? I, I would say that was definitely very prevalent in in the 40s and 50s. Right. Mm -hmm. But it's making a resurgence now. People, there's um, sign painters that are learning like that old school way of, of hand hand painting the the lettering on the the glass yeah. and doing yeah. it in that cursive style. Usually right. it's a cursive, you know, cursive letter. So it's like the cursive font. Mm -hmm. But I mean, we've never really done a study ourselves, but I mean, we get emails from people from all over the world that like will analyze these things and, and look at them. I mean, we've gotten people brick fanatics. They, cause we'll include the little bit of the store like that surrounds the storefront right. and they'll see that brick and they'll be like, oh, that brick. And that's just, an eerie Pennsylvania brick. Right, they'll know where that brick was manufactured, you know, and like that's what? very rare to see a yellow Erie, Pennsylvania brick. Right, we can't believe it. And they'll send us like paragraph long emails just on that. And we're like, wow, <laughs> we, we never anticipated that 
it would touch them in that way. Right, and the privilege signs. The privilege, privilege signs, signs are huge. Which are the the old like um, Coca Cola was a big mm. was a big company that used to they used to pay for the signs. So like if you were going to open up um, a little corner corner deli, say deli. little little right. deli on the corner, mm. and then you were willing to to sell Coca Cola product and only Coca Cola product, not Pepsi because that was their big competitor. Yeah, Coca Cola would pay for your signage. So they would put their branding, the Coca-Cola branding, the the, um, the logo, yeah. and you could put your own copy. So like the, the sign would come like with these letters that were made of, made of metal, and you would slide, slide it on, and they would provide it with you. You would tell them what you wanted to put on the sign, okay, Lafayette Grocery in Delhi, or whatever whatever you wanted to put, and you would slide them on. They would a give guy it sent to us a, a book of what Coca-Cola sent the business owners. Wow. Right, and there was like choices. Out. Do you want little diamonds? Do you want this? Do you want that? And it, and it was right. really Right, so that involved. was definitely 1930s, 1940s, that those privilege signs. And now they're highly signs, collectible. Right, you don't see that many privilege signs in New York anymore. So when did neon come into the picture for real? And who were the designers of these neon? Were there like any prominent designers oh, or companies? Oh, yeah. definitely. There was a lot of big neon companies. Again, 1940s, 1950s was the heyday in New York City for neon signs um, for the storefronts. And then they, it kind of fell out of feet, more out of favor. Through the 1960s, I think they were still favorable, but by the by 1970s, they had fallen out of favor in 1980s because number one, they're very um, difficult to maintain. Uh -huh. They're costly. It's a labor of love. It's a labor of love. Like they have to be, they're exposed to the elements, meaning like every time it rains or snows, like oh, something can short out as far as the circuitry. You need to have someone come in and repair it. Plus, in the 1970s and the 80s, um, when neighborhoods like got more downtrodden, the kids would break the signs. Like they would throw rocks. Right. and things like that at the sign, they would break right. them. Yeah, like Circo's Pastry right, they have in glass Bushwick tubes. put a riot cage over there. Tubes are, are made of glass, it's, it's an art form. It's like, you know, you hand, you hand blow the, the glass to form and shape the letters. Yeah. So they were breaking them and it was very costly to replace them, so. Can you buy them today? Can you buy? Oh, yeah. Yes, you can repair old signs. There's, I mean, a, a, there's a couple of um, neon. There's become a resurgence of neon again. Yeah. Um, Let there be neon is one great place, and we actually, you know, highlighted it in a video of ours on YouTube where we actually show the, the neon being bent, hand blown. Um, right. hand blown. We that, did, we carry it from design process all the way through lighting it. Right, like how they, they, they you know, first they hand draw like the design, yeah. and then, then it goes to the, the fabrication of the blowing of the, the blowers, glass, yep. and then it goes to the, the shop where they're actually taking the glass letters and then putting the, the, gas, the gas in it so mm -hmm. it lights up, and then it has to be fabricated onto whatever base, whether, you know, metal, you know, whatever it's going in, yeah. and then it has to be, you know, in, installed. So it's like a, it's a big, long process. It's, it's very costly. What about vintage? Uh Vintage neon signs, do they, they exist? Them. Oh yes, they can be refurbished. In fact, Russ and Daughters, which is one of our favorite neon signs in all of um, Manhattan because it has these beautiful little fish. Four colors. And it them. has more colors. It's more than just one color. It, yeah. It's a multicolor sign. They took their sign down in 2008. Oh, it cost a, a neighborhood. It cost us this neighborhood outcry. First of all, people The neighborhood were, ground to a halt. Right, Nikki Russ Fetterman told us that people were calling her on the phone. Oh my God, are you closing? Because when the sign came down, Everyone thought they were they're going out of business and they were closing, but they they just it got all, all rusted with age. They had to, and it was such a bad shape they had to take it down um, for it to be fixed and let there be neon actually actually fixed it. So yeah, they can redo it all. Um, in our own neighborhood, just a few blocks from here, is Veneros Pastisseria, mm -hmm. and they have a huge overhanging neon sign. In fact, it's so huge that it it's called grandfathered in, which means that in New York, if you wanted to put up a sign like that, you couldn't. 
uh-huh. that there's laws in effect now that your sign can't hang more than 16 or 18 inches from the face of the storefront. Yeah. That's it. So mm. if you have one that hangs more, it will be removed by the city. You'll be fined. You'll, you're breaking the law. Like the city is very stringent. In fact, you have to pay more money to have an illuminated sign than a non-illuminated sign. That's another reason why neon signs are disappearing is they cost a lot more. Huh. A lot of the owners just got fed up by giving the city you know, all this money. Yeah. The city does not make it easy to operate a small business. I don't care who the mayor's been, and um, no mayor in New York has been kind to small businesses. Yeah. And that's just a fact. Right. You can ask yeah. any store owner. They all sing the song that they love small businesses, but especially our present mayor, de Blasio, but... Brought along a store owner from John's of 12th Street, which is an ancient Italian restaurant. And we introduced him, and like five minutes into the talk, he just stood up and let the city have it. It was like his venting thing, and he went on for like a half hour just saying how the city is 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 not respectful and how they're not treating small business as well. Yeah. And every owner we interviewed said that... Right. Um, they, all these permits and all these fees fines and all these and fines the and lettering, this and that. You know, the ABC grade. And all adds up. It's just like they call it the hidden tax. The hidden tax the city has against, right. they, I don't know why, but why does the city want like everything to just be homogenized and just right. like be corporate America? Like, Remember he said when the, when the city food inspectors come, they have a bell in the front of the store mm-hmm. and they just ring the bell and throw away all the food they're making. Right, because they'll never pass he inspection. He says it's cheaper. Mm-hmm. It's cheaper just to throw everything away. Just and throw then, it away. Um, because they'll come and they'll just be like, if someone has milk out on the table because they're putting milk they're in their coffee, coffee and they've been they, sitting there they for take a, like a temperature, you know, they have a thermometer and they put it in the milk and they say, oh, the milk isn't, you know, 40 whatever degrees. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like it's, it's too warm. And that's yeah. just because it's been on the table. That doesn't mean the milk is bad. Yeah. It's just, it ha- it's not in a refrigerator because yeah. it has to be right. on a table for Remember you. Remember the bar owner at Cullen's in the Bronx telling us they came in with a light meter and they were testing his lights. Right, to, to see, see if how, he had the proper wattage. Wow. In the, and then they'd find him for, for... a bottle cap on the floor. Uh, for a bottle cap on the floor. You know, like, it's just... A lot of people that shop in Little Italy don't live in Little Italy anymore. Little mm. Italy is not Italian anymore, as far no. as, like, who lives there. So they rely on people that no longer live in the neighborhood that maybe moved to Staten Island, Bronx, Long Brooklyn, Island. Queens, Long Island, to drive into Manhattan. Get their cheese get and their, bread. Get their, like, you know, homemade ravioli and the homemade cheese, and then they leave. There used to be a lot of parking lots where you could just park your car and then go shop for, you know, a few hours. Yeah. They took away all the parking lots because the, 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 the property is so valuable they can get, you know, $30 million for a plot of land and they, they build a big condo. You know, yeah, so yeah. now the ticket agents just troll that area. Right, and there's very few on-street parking. And if, mm. So what would happen was is the people would come in to shop at the store and they would just pull up in front of the store and double park. Now they get like a hundred-something dollar ticket for doing that. He's like, we'll never see him again. They never see the customer again. No. He's like, he's lost so many customers because there's no place to park. What do you call the thing that you do? Are you are you preservationists? Are you uh, documentarians? You said something that I really like. There's artistic intervention rather than activism. You don't seem to be sort of... Uh, how should I say, lost in the negativity. But you seem to have a, a passion and enthusiasm for what is happening. Explain to me why that is. For us, we, are, we always take photos of open stores, like mm-hmm. in business. We want to promote and help the businesses that are still here today, Mm. whether they're struggling or not, because just because they're not struggling today doesn't mean they won't be struggling tomorrow. And that's even more so now because of the coronavirus. They need our help more than ever. So we were always hopeful. We never considered our project a like, oh, melancholy, Right, um, you know, minor piano keys, shots of puddles in the rain. Right, of closed stores. Violins, like when we're talking about a store. No, we wanted our book to be a celebration, kind of like an Irish wake. Yeah. I don't know if you've ever been to an Irish wake. Massive party, lots of drinking. Right, a person And you're celebrating, you're You're sending them off for the party. You're celebrating what they were. You're gathering together with all the things that we all have Right, so the book was more of a celebration of what was there. If they close, God forbid, we celebrate, Mm. you know, what they were. Right, we were. But that's exactly, I love how you put that. That's We've noticed, uh, we, we never, and also, like when people say, well, aren't you guys activists? 
we, we never want to get locked, like this was the time, uh, someone asked us that and it was the time of Occupy Wall Street. Right. And we like, we don't want our project to become Occupy Storefront. Yeah. You know, we don't want... Right, we realize New York is all about changing. New York is always changing. We're not going to prevent stores from closing. Stores yeah. will always close. Like, that's the nature of business. That's the nature of right. New York. We're not going to try to create like a museum of stores. Like, this store right. can never change. Like, this store has right. to stay exactly the way Ralph's it is. Ralph's on our book cover will be Ralph's forever. Right, that, that's not the New York we want. Yeah. But at the same time, if a store closes, a new store, a new mom and pop store, can take its place. Yeah. That's important right. for us. Yeah. It's maintaining the flavor of the neighborhood with these small, unique shops that define the neighborhood. The East Village always had like these quirky little stores. We don't mind, I mean, we're sad, of course, when, when a store that we document closed, but we want something unique yeah. and interesting to take its place, not a corporate franchise, Boersville, store that you could walk down that street and you could be anywhere. You yeah. could be anywhere in the world and yeah. it looks the, the same. And it seems like New York, the pace is super rapid and and that nobody really cares. Like, it seems like in Paris that the the government actually cares about the small stores. Right. I mean, in our minds, we see it that way. Maybe that's not the truth, but... There's more they, of appreciation. There's right? a more yeah. of appreciation of, like, the like history. Germany. I mean, Munich, we, we had a huge reception in, in Munich. Right. Yeah, we couldn't believe how well our project, like, our documentation of these mom-and-pop stores in New York was received overseas. We're like, well, why would they care about the mom-and-pop stores? Because they see it happening. They see the parallels in their, their own neighborhood. If we can document these stores and help raise awareness, like through our photography and the interviews that we've taken yeah. with the store owners, if we can just plant a seed in someone's mind that, okay, maybe I should shop local. Maybe I should go, instead of just ordering something online from Amazon or wherever, maybe I should just go into the store, help support it, in turn help support the community because when you're going to a store that's in your neighborhood, Chances are that's people from your own neighborhood that are working there, too. Yeah. So you're keeping money in, in the neighborhood. You're keeping it thriving. Um, and you maybe make a friend, yeah. you know, with the exactly. store owner. Yeah. So yeah. isn't that a win-win situation yeah. for everyone? Yeah. You know, you're, you're helping support them, and you're getting right. something from it yourself. So, so you, have, you have documented your work in uh, two beautiful books, one called Storefronts, The Disappearing Face, of New York and Storefronts 2, A History Preserved, right? Right, and New York Nights is actually a third book. A New York Nights? Yes, where we documented the businesses at night. So it's a lot of bars or, or restaurants or um, just businesses that have big neon signs yeah. that they glow more beautifully at night. So we said, oh, we're really doing us ourselves a disservice by photographing it during the day. Let's yeah. come back at night and photographing. So in between Storefront, The Disappearing Face in New York, and Storefront 2, our follow-up book to that one, we published New York Nights as well. So um, when um, I read somewhere that um, when Storefront, The Disappearing Face of New York, uh, came out in 2009, um, you wrote that uh, when you were writing the introduction, one third of the stores uh, that you had photographed had, had already disappeared. Now it's over 80. Now it's over 80. Yeah, now it's over 80%. And the book is from 2008. Right. It was, the pub date is 2008, but it actually came out like January 2009. So now you can just say 12 years later, um, 12 plus years, well over 80%. And, and it, I can name one that just closed just a few weeks ago that's not even included our 80%. So maybe it's 81%, which is Gem Spa. Yeah. Um, that was a, a beautiful little, like, newsstand candy store in the East Village. Mm -hmm. Famous for their egg creams. Famous for their egg creams, which is quintessential New York um, Lower East Side uh, fountain drink. And they were just forced to close. Like, they were they were doing poorly kind of beforehand, but the coronavirus shutdown was the nail in the coffin for them. How do you pick up the stores you want to portray in your work? Well, that's a great question. I mean, definitely in the very beginning, like we uh, said before, it was very visually based. Like, it just like, usually it was the signage that would attract us in the first place, whether it was a hand-painted sign or a big neon sign. It was definitely that, it had just that certain look and feel, I guess yeah, you could say. Yeah, patina to it. A certain, um, almost like, 
downtrodden. Like we really were attracted to the yeah, ones who are, yeah, that like father time had taken its toll on it. Like the sign was faded away. Or I remember um, a barber shop in Brooklyn, Richard's Barber Shop, and the letter P, like it had a little like they were like letters, kind of like the privilege sign where you would slide in. The letter P was falling off. It was dangling. So it was yeah. like dangling, like it would drop to like the yeah. drop to the ground like at any moment. We would be attracted by like the window displays, like I yeah. was saying before. We really right. love window displays. Like to us, that's like your advertisement of what that store sells. Like if you have an attractive window display, like I want to go in there. Like yeah. that will. Oh, what's well, that? Now that it's almost selling? like a sixth sense. We can kind of right. tell. I mean, even when we're traveling, and I see out the window in Virginia, I see this town, and I just look and I, I look oh, at it. Oh, there's mom and pops there. And I'm like, we gotta get off. We're not, we're not going. Forget, forget, like our, you know, like we have a schedule in our mind of how far we're gonna get, you know, every day, like yeah. while we're driving. Nope, we're pulling off. I'm like, next exit, we're getting, we're getting off because we passed it. We were right. Like we just had this sixth sense right. now. Like that, an old wig store. Right. It had an old wig store. It had an old secondhand <laughs> store. I even found an old camera store. Um, where they had some great 35 millimeter cameras, you know, real cheap. We still have yet, like, people say, oh, you must have walked every single street. You must have every store. You must have every store. And yeah. we're like, we'll never say that because there'll be a little street just like this one that we're on backing up to now, Rutherford. Like, that's a, that's a one block street. Yeah. Like, it only stretches from, from you know, 15, well, two, two yeah, blocks. 15 to 17. 15 to, to 17 Street. Yeah. If you said, where's Rutherford Place, like, to any New Yorker, unless they lived in this neighborhood, they would never know in a million years. Right. So what so are your favorite places uh, that you are exploring right now? Well, I mean, right now, because, like, we, until just a few weeks ago, we hadn't taken the subway. Mm -hmm. You know, for over two months, we didn't take the subway. Yeah. We only have been walking around where we can physically walk to. So I'd say the Lower East Side, Chinatown. Yeah. Lower East Side, Chinatown, we've been spending a lot of- so devastated. Right, yeah. they have a huge preponderance of mom and pop stores because the buildings are so small, a lot of the stores that are there are, are not like corporate places aren't interested in, in renting them because they're, they're too tiny. So what are the projects you're working on right now? What, what do you have in the pipeline? What can we look forward to? Well, right now, actually, I mean, we're holding a free public workshop. We're teaching others not how to take a store, but more like a collective experience on to how, appreciate them. how to appreciate and document these mom and pop places, take a photo, interview the owner, giving them tips on how best to do that because a lot of photographers aren't comfortable in the interview process. They like to hide behind the camera and they're not comfortable like asking questions. So tips and pointers on how to do that. And also a social media component because we find that we've reached a lot of people. We've definitely helped um, fundraise for certain stores that are struggling yeah. just by posting it on our Instagram and doing a YouTube video of it. You know, it really helps raise awareness. Trying to visit some stores, like reach out to the owners, see if they're struggling and highlight them in, in particular. So now we're focusing on individual stores and really trying to document them, especially Thoroughly, through video. Yeah. Thoroughly document them thoroughly ask, like, how has the coronavirus affected your business? Mm -hmm. What can we do to help? What can others do to help? And, you know, it's trying to spread the word that way because I'm very fearful that we're going to see a lot of closures, that yeah. they're just not going to be able reopen, to make it. Yeah. They're not going to either, A, reopen, period, or they're just not going to be able to survive because tourists aren't coming here to New York. I don't know when tourists are coming to New York. That right. tourism is a large part of New York's economy, yeah. whether you know, whether you like to admit <laughs> it or, or not. not. Right. To see a guy that's run that has a bakery that's been in existence since 1898, right? Usually has a staff of like 30 people. Hmm. Try to keep it alive and afloat with him and his son running out to the car, delivering things, answering the phone by. I mean, it's heartbreaking. It's tough to watch. Right. You know, and we, and he, he, he told us, he's like, I'm going down with the ship. He's like, our business has been through the Great Depression. It's been through yellow fever. Spanish flu. Spanish flu. It's been through 9-11. It's been through, and we've never seen anything like right. this. And he and he's like, I'm not going to let my business he's, die. He's, this is an Italian pastasseria. This is Venero's hmm. on, on uh, East 11th Street. Yeah. He is open, even on a holiday. On Christmas Day, he's open. Like, he closes early, but people yeah. come in to right. get, you and know, pastries for their And it looks like he hasn't slept in months. Yeah. Know, and he's, 
and, and it's 90 degrees out. He's trying to deliver. And... But we have um, Tompkins Square Bagels. We interviewed the owner. He told us his business is down 80%. Yeah. 80%. Yeah, he hasn't paid the rent He hasn't months. paid the rent, you know, in months. And he's telling us with literal tears in his eyes that he's worried about his older customers because he hasn't been able to see them and, and keep in touch with them, how they're doing with the coronavirus. Wow. And he's actually crying telling us this. Right, he's not even worried about his own business. He's worried about the people that he doesn't see every day. Wow. Because, you know, where where he's been open because he's a food business, so he's allowed to stay open, and, but and usually there's only a line for takeaway. Out, right. You know. There's a line out the door on Saturdays usually, and, and we're interviewing him on a Saturday, and he's like... Waving we'll his it. hand at his store, it's like one person out one front, person. you know, picking up a bagel. Right. One bagel. He's like, look at this. You know, he's like, yeah. how are we going to survive? Right. You're doing a terrific job uh, here in New York. You are helping us to appreciate what uh, uh, moms and pop stores and their their value in, in the community here and also helping these store owners uh, to survive uh, inspire us all to uh, shop locally. You're doing a great job and I'm, I'm so happy we had this conversation. Uh, check out their, their books, Storefront, The Disappearing Face of New York and Storefront 2, A History Preserved and The Night. New York Nights. New York Nights, thank you. And of course, on YouTube. This is Art Insiders New York. My name is Anders Holst. If you enjoyed this episode and have family and friends who love New York and are passionate about the world of art, design and architecture in the city, please spread the word by following us on artinsidersnewyork.com or liking us on our Facebook page, Art Insiders New York, where we publish newsworthy material all the time. It's very much appreciated. Thank you. This episode was produced by UOM LLC, copyright 2020. 